Well, good morning, church family. <clears throat> for those that were here last week, Mason, you're welcome for continuing the four-week now, of opening the service with that. Uh, for those that weren't, still, good morning. Um, as you may have heard this morning, we will be celebrating the Lord's Supper together. And in light of that, I chose Psalm 22, verses 1 through 18 for this morning's sermon. Um, I think you'll see why as we read through it, and especially in light of uh, what Damien just read for us. Um, so start turning there now. Uh, if you're using the Pew Bible, it's on page 427. Um, and uh, while you're turning there, let me provide just a little bit of background. So the 22nd Psalm is written by King David, um, yet the actual context of the Psalm is not clear. And that's what made this one of the more challenging sermons that, that I've had to write. I assumed, like so many psalms going into it, that there would be a pretty simple explanation for what David was going through and why he chose to write these words. Yet, even the best commentators are left scratching their heads a little bit. The psalm starts itself out uh, as what we might call a lament or a cry to God for help. And that's the part that I wish for us to study together this morning. So in this lament, we hear David crying out to God, pleading with him, in fact, and we don't know the reason. Some have said that maybe what was happening during this time was he was being persecuted and chased by King Saul. Uh, others have said he might have been fleeing from his son Absalom when this was written. But perhaps therein lies the beauty of the psalm. We don't actually know the context. So... While we might be able to guess, it's perhaps beside the point. Instead, we enter into this psalm not knowing why it was written, only that it was, and that many of us can relate to these feelings. What's more, we don't need to know the exact circumstances of the psalm because it can apply to many of us in our moments of distress and conflict when we don't understand why God is not responding the way we want Him to or in the timing that we want him to. With that said, let's read the psalm together. Again, we'll be looking at just the first half of Psalm 22, starting in verse 1 and ending in verse 18. I'll read it for us. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry to you by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who seek me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. 
My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. What powerful imagery we see here. And we likely cannot escape the familiarity of so many of these verses because, uh, not because of what we necessarily recall from this psalm itself as much as where we see it in the New Testament and specifically in the Gospels. But before we get too far into that, I want to reiterate that this psalm should not just be viewed in light of David's circumstance, nor is it just a prophecy for what would happen to Jesus, but also, as the ESV Study Bible calls it, it's a, quote, lament for the individual sufferer, end quote, a lament for the individual sufferer. For that's how it was originally written, as a lament for someone in great agony and suffering. And we should not be afraid to see the similarities between what we read and what we may have felt at a given time in our lives. Many of us have felt pain in these words, the pain that is in these words, and I think that's part of, part of why this chapter is here, to help us see that it's okay to be in pain. And also to instruct us on how to come before the Lord when we're in anguish. In the end, however, we must admit that this psalm goes beyond just David's sufferings and our own, and it is really a prophecy pointing to the ultimate innocent sufferer, Jesus Christ the one who could truly claim that he had done nothing to deserve the treatment he received and was crushed by the Father for no fault of his own. Put another way, like all of the Old Testament, this psalm is meant to point to something greater. It is meant to help us see Jesus Christ. The Old Testament is a vast collection of writings written in part so we could see our inadequacy to save ourselves and our need for a Savior. Hebrews 10, 11 through 14 tells us and uh, specifically notes that the sacrifice prescribed in the Old Testament was never able to take away sin in and of itself. It says, quote, and every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected all, for all time, those who are being sanctified. So we see here that in the Old Testament sacrificial system, there was no way, there was no possible way that it could take sin away from us. But instead, it was to show us that a blood sacrifice, a payment for sin is required. Sin has a price, and blood will be shed for sin. But only the perfect Son of God could offer His blood as a total and complete and final payment for our sin. So now let's look at this, this, uh, this chapter, verse by verse, uh, starting with verse 1. A familiar, a familiar line, no doubt. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? 
Again, I know you probably recognize this from the New Testament passage we just read, but before we talk about that, let's consider this verse on its own in, in the original context as much as we can. David here is in dire straits. He is calling out to God and asking him, why has he forsaken him? This is not a word that we use very often today. Uh, as a matter of fact, I think I'd have a little bit of a hard time concocting a sentence uh, using the word myself. So uh, what does forsaken mean? Well, some other translations have, have translated the word as abandon in its place. And that is perhaps a synonym, but I think Derek Kinder's definition in his commentary on the Psalms, uh, I like this one best when he says that to be forsaken meant, quote, God's familiar protective presence is withdrawn and the enemy is closing in. God's familiar and protective presence is withdrawn and the enemy is closing in, end quote. We know such pain and longing when we feel the world is collapsing all around us, when the walls are closing in, when we're utterly helpless. At those times, it seems that God has removed his protective presence from us. But we also must see here that the author, while in distress, has not given up on God. How do we know that? Well, first and foremost, because he's calling out to God. He cries out to God because he knows and believes that while God is not delivering him as quickly as he'd expected or hopes, he is still the one who can answer, the only one who can possibly help. God has not yet acted here, but David still expects him to and longs for him to, as should we when we ask for aid in the midst of our distress. But now let's look to the New Testament where we see Jesus echo these words on the cross. Matthew tells us in his gospel, chapter 27, verse 46, quote, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, end quote. So on the cross, as Jesus hangs there, beat up, bruises covering his body, blood from his hands, his feet, and his forehead trickling down, he feels the protective hand of the Lord is being removed from him as the sin of the guilty. And let us not be confused. That's the sin of us who are his chosen people was poured out on him. And it had to be so because, as I said, no, no animal sacrifices could have truly atoned for our sin. And in his distress, Jesus cries out, showing the frailty and yet full humanity that existed in the person of Jesus Christ, absorbing the wrath for sin. And truly, Jesus was the only one who could actually say that he was forsaken. He is the only one who found himself without God's protective hand on this earth. For by either common grace or saving grace, we have not been totally without the hand of God in our lives. And we can always turn to him for his help. But for Jesus, in that moment, God's protection was removed. In the next verse, we see that David's calling out to God is unceasing. He says, Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, and I find no rest. Despite David's cries, there is not yet an answer. All day long, David cries out to God, and yet he does not see what the Lord is up to or find peace from what ails him. 
I wonder how many of us have felt this way. Have you? Have you ever thought to yourself, I have prayed and prayed for this to go away? Or I have prayed and prayed for this answer, and yet I have not heard God's reply. He has not removed me from this suffering or this situation. Well, find some comfort here, knowing that you are not alone. David felt this desperation too, and he struggled to, to rest and find peace in the unresolved battle in his life. But, but, we must persevere in prayer, even though we struggle to know whether God is answering. For we must go to him who not only hears us, but answers. In the book of Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8a, we see this illustrated in the story of the persistent widow. It says, and Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Like the widow, we are to continually cry out to God, our just judge, our just judge, who hears and will answer and will do so at the right time. Moving on to verse 3, David writes, Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. So David stops here for a moment to acknowledge that God is still good. He is still perfect in all that he does, even though David's plea has not yet been answered. Such faith, such steadfastness, despite agony. David is distraught, without a doubt. But he does not let that change who he knows God to be. He feels, like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 8 and 9, that he has been, quote, afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Oh, and hey, by the way, there's that word again. Did you catch it? Forsaken. Paul professes here what David struggled to see, that David truly had not been forsaken even though he felt that way and even though we may feel that way at times in our lives. Yes, in the midst of suffering, we still have a holy God to turn to, a God who has not changed and who is glorified and lifted high through the worship of his people. Verses four through five go on to say, in you our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. So what David's doing here is he's rooting his trust in what he knows of God's good deeds to his ancestors. He looks back at God's faithfulness and finds hope and confesses that God is good and he knows that God can deliver him as he delivered his forefathers. 
Most often what we see when this is uh, referred to in the Old Testament is uh, the, the faithfulness and deliverance of God at the Exodus. That is the time in the life of the Hebrews where God delivered them from Pharaoh and enslavement in Egypt to go on to the promised land and to worship him as their God. God heard the cries of his people there and answered their prayer for rescue. But I want to remind us this morning that that same deliverance, which is detailed in the book of Exodus, did not happen quickly. No, it was actually a few hundred years. The exact number is debated, but probably at least 200 years before God brought Moses to stand before Pharaoh and demand that he let God's people leave Egypt and enslavement. So we are forced to accept that God does not always act on our timetables. He is faithful and he will rescue his people, but how and when are a part of his great plan and not something that we know. Next, David acknowledges his own place before God and confesses it in verse six. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. David says here that he is the lowest of the low in the animal kingdom, a worm, a bug that feeds on dirt and dead things, including dead bodies something that is often trampled under the feet of others. And lest we forget, this is King David that wrote this. This is perhaps one of the greatest men who ever lived. And yet, he says here, he is the lowest of all before God and before others. He can do nothing but feed on dirt and dying things and be trampled on if not for the help of God. Hopefully, we can come to God with this same humility with this same humbleness. And, and David goes on, and, and uh, as others look down on him and deride him in the next two verses as well, he continues, all those who mock me, they make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. These evil men around David and deriding him uh, are deriding him for being a fool, for trusting in the Lord. And they are mocking the Lord in the process as well. Yet what we see in their harsh words is an assumption. An assumption that if David truly belongs to God and God loves him, then it must not be God's will to see him suffer. And it must be God's will to deliver David in that moment. But is that true? In our own lives, does God deliver us instantly from every pain and suffering that we see? When we're wrestling with what direction to go or with persecution, does God immediately change our circumstances or deliver us from hurt? If you say yes, then I would say you probably have some pretty bad theology or have not walked very long with God. Because God's will is not that we would never have any discomfort in our lives. If we think that God desires for us to be comfortable all the time, then perhaps as Mason preached on last week, we are not worshiping God, but the idol of comfort. Now we see the same scene play out in Jesus' crucifixion as well. Back in Matthew 27, verses 39 through 43, it says, 
and those who passed by him derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, he saved others and he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. <laughs> Again, we find the assumption by the mockers, even the Pharisees and, and uh, ashamedly, the, the Pharisees and, and the elders of the Jews, that it could not possibly be God's will for his chosen one to die on a cross. No, their lust for power and their greed for wealth had driven them to yell and scream for the crucifixion of Jesus. And now, not at all put off by the sign of the innocent Jesus dying a gruesome death, they sat down at his feet and began to chastise him. They began to insult him with the assumption that God would not allow this to happen if Jesus was who he said he was. And yet, we know that God was in fact using the suffering and pain here more than anywhere else in scripture or all of history to accomplish his good will. This is the ultimate example of God's will, including suffering of man. And we should strive to remember when we face hardships, it's not wrong to ask for God's rescue, not at all, but God may also be using this in our lives for a greater purpose that we cannot see. David then turns to how God has been with him since day one of his life, and he recalls in the next two verses, yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. David recognizes that he has been called as a child of God since before he was even born. He was created with a specific and special purpose in God's kingdom, as are each of we, each of us. Thus, he is wrestling with how this God, who he says later in Psalm 139, verse 13, knit him together in his mother's womb, had not yet answered. How could this God, who has been for him from the beginning, not deliver him? Why doesn't he act more quickly? Brothers and sisters, is that you? Do you recognize the hand of God on your life, perhaps even since your birth, and yet cannot understand the purpose and timing of what God has you going through right now? Do you struggle to see what good could possibly come out of the situation that you're in? Again, what we take from this is not a simple answer, but what we do know is you're not alone. David confesses and even gives us words to confess here ourselves that despite God being the one who brought us into being, it is unclear why his prayers have not yet been answered. But then he acknowledges again that he needs God no matter what happens. And he pleads with God in verse 11, be not far from me for trouble is near and there is none to help. David asks for God's closeness as no one can help, no one but God. Only God can provide 
the help he truly needs, and he wants God to draw near to him, no matter what his answer might be. These verses are, are not an affront to God's character, nor are they accusatory of God, as Job was in the end of that book, but instead it is a plea to God, the holy, praiseworthy deliverer of his people, to act again and to be near us when we are brokenhearted. For he is the only one who can give us the help we need. He is the only one able to rescue and comfort. Again, how about you? Do you ask God to draw near in times of need? Or do you accuse God of causing you misery and blame him for not delivering you as you think he should? Do you look to God for help, even when it seems help is far off and rescue eludes you? Do you continue to turn to him? Or do you simply say, why me, God? Why me? What, what did I do to deserve this? Perhaps we all can take a lesson here from David and instead humble ourselves and ask the Lord not just to answer our prayer quickly, but also to be close as we wait. Verses 12 and 13 go on to describe the enemies surrounding David in his distress. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. The animals in these verses briefly are representative of those who wish to harm David. And bulls were especially known for their sheer strength. And those in Bashan were perhaps the strongest and healthiest of all, bull, of all bulls uh, due to the fertile grazing ground in that region. So these strong adversaries are closing in on David and he is fearful for his life as well he should be. And yet in his intense fear, he continues to cry out to God. He goes on in verses 14 and 15 to say, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a, a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Another vision of David's desperation is seen as he describes his own agony. He's exhausted, his strength gone, his heart melting. We see a similar description in Joshua chapter 2 uh, for the hearts of those living in Jericho, not Jews yet at the time, um, but, but others, Gentiles, who heard about the Israelite army coming their way as they were taking over the promised land. They knew that what had happened to the other nations around them was not pretty, that they had been defeated, and the hearts of those living in Jericho did more than just sink. They melted with fear and trepidation. Jesus' crucifixion is also seen in these verses as he hung on the cross and had no strength left. Like a, like a potsherd or a broken piece of pottery lying on the ground, dried up and sapped of of his energy to go on, Jesus allowed himself to be tortured and is now in the final moments of his life, thirsty, near death, near returning to the dust from which we were created. The description of this sad scene continues. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me that uh, they have pierced my hands and my feet. Now, you may know this or you may not, but dogs in the near ancient East were not the cuddly companions they are today. They were dangerous scavengers, largely undomesticated and ravenous, probably akin to wolves or vultures. 
They would eat whatever they could find and were known to feed on the bodies of the dead. This is the scene that is being described here where David feels his enemies waiting for his death. Where Jesus sees the end is near and the vultures are circling, waiting for him to take his last breath. David's understanding uh, of the hands and feet being pierced here as well may have been related to these dogs biting his hands, nipping at his hands and feet, and thus piercing him. But we know now that this was more than just a description of David's anguish, but of the very literal piercing of the hands and feet of Jesus. And I want to make sure that we don't miss this because this is so, so incredible, so important. This is a, a full prophetic word that we read here from David. Because you may not know this, but, but crucifixion was not in practice at the time that David wrote these words. Matter of fact, it would be hundreds of years before it was first introduced as a means of torture and punishment. So it's quite incredible that this is how David chooses to describe his torment here in light of its literal fulfillment when they crucified Jesus. Finally, we come to the last two verses. Psalm 22, verses 17 through 18. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. The counting of bones, again, describes a nearness to death and that the bones were sticking out of his flesh due to his emaciated state. Jesus would have seen something like this at his death as he was stretched out on the Roman cross, his ribs likely being able to be seen in his chest. And indeed, as he hung there, as we know, the soldiers cast lots, or they rolled dice, more or less, for his clothes. As it says in John 19, 23 through 24, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments, divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but let's cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. And then John, just to make sure we don't miss it, goes on to tell us directly, this was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Not at all worried about the one they were torturing, hanging helplessly behind them, the Roman guards wanted his stuff. So they rolled some dice, and the person who had the best roll presumably got to keep Jesus' tunic. How shameful. That word really describes this whole scene. When it comes to Jesus' death, it was shameful. This man, God in the flesh, was not only whipped, spit on, punched, mocked, bruised, battered, hair pulled out of his beard, flesh hanging off of his bones, bones sticking out, stretched out on a cross, nailed to it and suffocating. But on top of this, he was left there naked for all to see on the cross. Sure, we like to clean it up for movies and Easter plays, but the truth is Jesus almost certainly hung there, completely bare, with no covering, naked and humiliated for everyone to see. And he did that not because of any shame in his life, but rather to pay 
in full for the sin and shame we deserve for all that we have done and said and think and all that we will do and say and think. He allowed himself to hang there so that we could be set free from the penalty for sin. Praise be to God. So what should we take from this? What application is there in these verses? Well, first, it's a good reminder that we have words in Scripture that can help us as we feel like God is not hearing us or answering quickly. We have words in Scripture that can help us as we feel like God is not hearing us or answering quickly. We were not the first ones to feel this distraught or far from God at times. And even God's faithful servants like David have felt the pain and agony of not seeing God respond in the way they expected or in the timing he thought best. Secondly, in our suffering, we must go to the one who has any true power to help us and save us. In our suffering, we must go to the one who has any true power to help us and save us. And when we go to him, we, we do so humbly recognizing that his character and holiness remain unchanged even as we wrestle with our current plight. And yet, we must cry out to him and trust him to do what's best. Last, I think we can take from these verses and all of God's use of the Old Testament and how it points to Christ. And all of God's use of the Old Testament and how it points to Christ. God left us prophecies in the Old Testament so that we would recognize the Christ when he came. He gave us the law and the sacrificial system so we would understand that we would never be able to have or provide a perfect or uh, we would never be able to be perfect or attain salvation apart from his intervention and providing a sacrifice. Many Jews, fortunately, eventually saw this in their scriptures and believed. Yet sadly, even today, some with blinded eyes look at the Jewish scriptures and refuse to see Jesus in them, as we so clearly do. So praise God for these words today, which help us to know how to approach Him and that God uses suffering, drawing us closer to Himself and responding with perfect timing and points us to His Son, Jesus, throughout the entirety of Scripture. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you, Lord, that you used men great and small in the Old Testament to, to write down your truths and to help us to see your coming when it happened. Thank you, Lord, that, that you have given us examples of people who are in distress and cry out, that, that we can know that following you is not going to always be easy or is not going to always be fun or happy, but there are times when we're in distress and don't understand. And yet, Lord, those are the times when you draw us close to yourself and, Lord, where you might be doing something greater that we can't yet see. Help us to have faith in those moments to trust that that is true. And help us, Lord, to draw close to you in the midst of suffering and to always look to Jesus as our hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.